Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. You know what that means, wow. Mike Murphy? That uh, I do. It's time for me to ask my sister to get married. That is uh, <laughs> that is Lexington Bell, and mm-hmm. uh, it can only mean two things. One is Mitch McConnell is happy these days, and our guest is Dave Wasserman, part-time fiddler, ah. full-time fiddling with electoral data uh, from Cook, our buddy. Well, David, you want to know the backstory with that song? Yes. Yeah. When people think of the Bell of Lexington, they think of, you know, a debutante ball, when in fact, that song was written about an infamous Lexington, Kentucky madam who ran a brothel in the early 20th century. So it's befitting of... of, uh... (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, Well, Murphy, welcome to... uh, And and Dave, welcome to Day 14 of America Held Hostage, President's... uh, ensconced in the White House, pondering war on the one hand, pulling troops back uh, from Afghanistan and Iraq in the other, ignoring COVID and holding up a transition. So other than that, everything's peachy. Yeah. That's another day. Hey, Murphy, why uh, you, you told you explained last week that a buddy of yours said, this is like talking an, an elephant, or how do you talk an elephant into a coffin or into his grave slowly? Right. Uh, at what at what point, if ever, do your buddies decide that okay, it's time? Well, I think my Republican former colleagues and occasionally strained friends. They would say, you know, it's easy for the Democrats to be so pious about this because their primary voters all hate Trump. My primary voters all love Trump. So the smart move for me, other than political suicide, because he's still going to be around, as as Axelrod keeps predicting on your damn podcast, Murphy, and you foolishly don't recognize, um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm going to wait for the certification and let the news tighten and he's gone. So it's it's awful, but it's going away, and getting in front of this by a week kills me and doesn't change Trump. That, that's what they would say. So you've had little, you know, there are little cracks in the wall starting to break. I think you see, you know, the DeWines, he got a tweet back. That scared the other guys. Langford was kind of a hero for three days, <laughs> and then, then yeah. from Oklahoma, the senator then hit a little retreat. So they're, they're all about the certifications, which have already started and are kind of the curtain dropping the reality. So they, they consider this all noise, and they're afraid to screw with it. That That's the, that's yeah, the reality. Now, hear? I think it's contemptible, but that's the reality. What do you hear, Wasserman? Yeah, this is, this is a case where I talk to congressional Republicans day in, day out, who know that everything coming from the top is a bunch of hogwash, and yet they live in total fear of their next primary. What does that mean? I do think Trump is moving his act down the street murphy keeps asserting that he will have the stench of of death on him and therefore will lose his potency and uh they no longer will have to worry about him well wait a minute let me let i me have my take doubts about that just watching this spectacle personal privilege i i, I believe that the people are overreacting the endless trump grip on the party i mean this is to be found out but Trump will always be there. He'll be a factor. I just think the idea that he'll be in total control and he'll be in a year what he is now, I think is wrong. But we'll find out. Well, you got a bunch of guys who want to run for and, and some gals who want to run for president, mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of them in Congress. Uh, what do they do with him? Well, that's part of the plotting, right? I mean, he's in the way, even for the imitators. You know, Tom Cotton you know, would like to smarten up the Trump Act and run for president. So I don't think they know what to do, but I don't think any of them wish him continued political success. I mean, what, what do you hear on the Hill, Dave? What, what's your kind of take on the, because you can already kind of feel the primary uh, characters kind of putting on their running shoes. What, what, what's, what from that world, what do you hear about Trump? Well, look, I think there's a private desire to kick him to the curb and a, and a public 
you know, com- complete crippling fear of, of, of what that would mean for their individual prospects. And, uh, you know, what I hear, the overwhelming chorus is, oh, this is a grieving process, right? <laughs> well, I- I'm not sure that the five stages of grief apply to this president at all. Sadly, I think there are 12 stages of grief, which is part of the problem here. It takes a long time. He only has one stage, anger. Yeah, but, but the fear thing is, is real. The fear thing is real. And, uh, I mean, the fact that the two candidates for Senate in Georgia turned on the Secretary of State there and demanded his resignation because they didn't like the outcome of the election in Georgia, and they think this is going to help them on January 5th, tells you a lot about where everyone's heads are at vis-a-vis Donald Trump. He may not be president of the country, Murphy, but he's still kind of president of your tribe. Yeah, oh, look, it, it, it's all tribe now, too. They they want to stay out of the maw, you know, the big Godzilla teeth out there. And even the, even the senators who despise Trump the most, everybody wants to win those Georgia runoffs. And, and kind of the psychology down there is traditionally the Republicans have had an advantage in recent Georgia, and they have an advantage in runoff. So we have something to lose. You know, if if nothing goes wrong, including some Trump war with us, we're going to pick up those two seats and keep a grip on control. But then they're quiet. They're worries in the caucus because nobody thinks that, that Senator Kelly Leffler or to a lesser extent, David Peru are like outstanding or Purdue are outstanding candidates, you know? So there's a little fear, but they have something to lose. They just want to get to January 4th, get two wins, bolt down the, uh, um, uh, the majority in the Senate. So if that, if that, if indulging Trump, which they are afraid, as David says, not to do is part of helping that equation, rile up the Republican base, make sure it turns out Trump will still at least have a grip through early January, feed the grievance, and that gets them, keeps them out of political trouble personally if they're primary voters, and in their view, helps them secure a Senate majority. So no-brainer for these guys politically. Well, keep in mind that Leffler, it's amazing that she's even in the runoff after <laughs> after yeah, where she is. was earlier this year. And Purdue, for his part, I mean, the guy's ducking debates left and right after what happened against Ossoff uh, in the final debate before the election. Yeah, he got mauled in the last one. So... It's amazing that we're even talking about Republicans being the favorites, given the the turnout dynamic and the quality of the candidates. Let, let me ask you, because uh, I, I read uh, religiously read your uh, tweets as you pick through the entrails of this election. Um, it's very, very obvious that Biden uh, won the election because the suburbs turned just enough uh, on him, particularly men in the suburbs, interestingly, uh, uh, turned on him. Do these, do these same people who turn out because they couldn't stand Donald Trump, do they turn out for Democrats now in Georgia, in those suburbs that were really what delivered the election? You, you listed two of the districts in Georgia that flipped from R to D, uh, and they were suburban districts. Do those folks come out and vote against Republican senators? Well, This is tricky because in the past, as we've all pointed out, Georgia runoffs have gotten whiter and older than the November electorate. And traditionally, that's helped Republicans. Now, in the past, they've also gotten more college educated because the people who always vote tend to be those who are most plugged in. And in the past, it's helped Republicans because they were getting the northern Atlanta suburbs. Well, this time around, it's less clear cut because it's Democrats who have margins among those voters. And it's Kelly Leffler, who's kind of the Cruella de Vil of the suburbs that that suburban men and women tend to dislike. So it's, you know, it's less clear that there's going to be a turnout advantage for one side or the other. And of course, the other factor is you can still register to vote, even if you were not registered for the November election. And Democrats are going to pour a lot of money into that operation. And don't forget that the president's denigration of dominion and all these wild conspiracy yeah. theories could that yeah. could that convince some republicans that it's not worth showing up who knows you know one of my questions or does it just piss some of these people off i mean does the spectacle of what's going on in georgia where you have this poor you know this uh, 
Secretary of State, who looks to me like he's going to need to go to a sanitarium after this thing is done because he's getting death threats from his own... Brad Raffensperger. He, he's a hero. You know, I'll give him a salute. He's been so brave. Yeah, but, you know, how do, how do like, those suburban voters, for example, for example, view that? Uh, the fact that these two threw in with Trump and his crazy conspiracy theories and Lindsey Graham calling the guy saying, why don't you throw out a stack of ballots uh, there, uh, you know, uh, without any justification, legal ballots. Uh, you know, doesn't that piss people off down there? If I were running against uh, those guys, I'd be at least exploring that possibility to kind of turn the tables on them. Well, is it a completely reprehensible affront to all of the poll workers and election administrators who made this election, you know, come off a success amid record turnout and challenges? Yes, absolutely. But is there any way that Purdue and Leffler could offend people uh, in the suburbs beyond, you know, anything they might have done to offend them before the election? I'm not, I, you know, I don't think so. Where's the governor, by the way? I haven't heard from Kemp. What has he said about this? He's a big Trumpy. He's been trying to walk a line. He hasn't. He, he hasn't thrown in with the the attacks that Purdue and Leffler have made on Raffensperger. I think the runoff is kind of a contest of three things. One, the point that Wasserman made a minute ago about college-educated runoff voters: do they stay flipped, or are they a little more partisan and a lower turnout? What happens there? And then Metro Atlanta, Fulton. You know, I think one reason they're hiding Senator Perdue is he did a, a magnificent job of infuriating, you know, Democratic base constituencies with his Kamalama ding dong comedy routine. And he's basically <laughs> been in the WITSEC program ever since because he's a turnout machine for Metro Atlanta. Even seeing him probably boils blood. So that's why, you know, he's gone into hiding hoping he gets a normal, normal runoff. So there's kind of a double jump ball. I don't think the process stuff. I think it's kind of baked in. And so I think a lot of the fulcrum is going to be, and you see this in Ossoff, one of the Democratic challengers' latest commercials, you know, to help help Biden fix COVID. Number one issue, particularly among Biden voters, you need me. You know, we have to get the competent team in there. Versus the R's who are going to say, all right, we got Biden. We got Pelosi. Now suburbanite who doesn't like the Republicans on some style points and, and Trump who's going away. Uh, you ready to turn over the Senate, too, because, you know, we all love right. higher taxes and the socialism right. stuff. And we know from the congressional races in the right places that has some torque. So I think it's a jump ball between those two things. If I had to bet, I'd, I'd bet the R's are going to prevail. But they're all weak candidates. That's the other thing. You know, for a Democrat to win a lower turnout runoff, if if it's history again, maybe it's going to be different this time, you need a real superstar candidate. And I think the two incumbents are kind of saps, but I don't see a great Democrat superstar candidate either. It, it's kind of a fair fight in that dimension, and that, that may be the missing piece for the Ds there. Yeah, there is a real danger, I think, with out-of-state uh, involvement in this race as well for Democrats. We saw in all of these toss-up Senate races the the story late in the game in Maine, in South Carolina, Montana, and Iowa became the the fundraising totals themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. Republican senators did an effective job of framing their Democratic opponents as puppets of San Francisco and New York donors who were flooding the zone with cash. This is the flip side. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about how remarkable it was that Democrats could raise all this money, you know, online. Uh, and for the first time, like in my lifetime in politics, which unfortunately spans even longer than Murphy's, which makes me <laughs> almost uh, a, a prehistoric. Uh, for the first time, Democrats had a, a, a uniform advantage uh, over Republicans, uh, even the president. A Republican president uh, was at a, a financial uh, disadvantage. We'd never heard of this before, and it seemed like a huge plus for Democrats. But as you point out, it became an emblem uh, that Republicans turned on Democrats, and they they made it a, a messaging advantage for them uh, in their states. Well, it fed the ideology deal because Republican regular voters see out-of-state Democratic money is highly ideological. So it became another signal that, you know, there are a bunch of billionaires in a hot tub in California who are going to turn us into a socialist paradise by funding the candidate down here in Georgia by hell. 
And, you know, it, it, it helped with the overall narrative, which was a surprise because you're right. The, normally the money is pretty predictive and the Dems did outstanding job in both low and high dollar raising. it. Yeah, well, let me say that uh, for all their yammering about that, um, Republicans just tapped Karl Rove to lead a nationwide fundraising campaign uh, to, uh, uh, you know, for these two Senate candidates. So there's going to be a lot of ideological money pouring in there uh, from, from both sides. So Wasserman, um, what happened in the house? I, I was, uh, you know, I'm a, 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 as I said, a religious reader of cook and its ratings and its projections and so on. And like all of us, um, something went terribly wrong. Yeah. You know, I've been doing this 13 years now covering the house for Cook, and I'll be the first to say that our our house forecast sucked uh, and everyone's dead. But uh, look, in retrospect, I think I'm there glad a couple... they're not a sponsor of this podcast, <laughs> but go ahead. Well, we're, we're happy to sell them an ad to dig out of the hole. We're right there with yeah. them. I'm the king of Ohio and uh, Axe is king of North Carolina. Yeah. So that's right. Recovery begins with humility. We can play that clip of Wasserman, probably get you some additional readers. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Well, in retrospect, I think there are a couple blind spots for for us analysts of of the House. The first was that Trump being on top of the ballot, much as in 2016, represented the best of both worlds for Republicans in the sense that, number one, he brings out millions of low propensity conservatives who would never uh, turn out for Joe Schmo, Republican candidate in a midterm or off year. And they would never, you know, even though they're not crazy about those congressional Republicans, they see them as part of the swamp. They would never vote for a Democrat or never vote to empower Pelosi or AOC. So that was a net benefit everywhere for Republicans. And the second factor was that consider suburban women and independent voters whose only opportunity in 2018 to vent their anger at Trump was to vote for a Democrat down ballot. And in 2020 and 2016, they had an opportunity to vent their anger at Trump directly at the top of the ticket, but still vote for a congressional Republican that they liked. And so we saw a number of, of Republicans in Biden districts like John Katko in New York or Brian Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania or Don Bacon in Nebraska. We, we don't talk about this often, but Omaha actually had the largest anti-Trump swing in the country of any electoral college prize on the map. Uh, but that allowed them to survive even while Biden was doing extremely well. And there was a bigger split ticket vote than we've seen in the past. That is the amazing thing, the ticket splitting creeping back a little. I mean, that Fitzpatrick, by the way, in PA, I want to like bottle a little of his DNA as the can never be beat tonic because that, that guy is in a tough district and he always, always manages he's kind of the artful dodger a little bit like susan collins in the senate to survive i mean i gotta tip my hat at him and some of the others same story and they managed to do it they managed to profit from people who voted for biden and them yeah and in the final week of the campaign i was in the nbc decision desk bubble in philadelphia we moved it from from 30 rock in new york down to the comcast tower in philly uh to social distance and i was watching ads on tv for fitzpatrick he had endorsements from Pretty much everyone on the spectrum, uh, except the you know the Democratic Party itself. I mean, he was talking about the League of Conservation Voters, the you know Police Benevolent Association, right. uh, the you know Every Town for Gun Safety, the AFL CIO. This guy had it all. Smart way to do it. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with 
motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach, telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. I want to ask you about that Omaha district because there's this big debate going on inside the Democratic caucus now. You know, as you can imagine, as, as, as happens when you think you're going to win a dozen seats and you may end up losing 10 or more. And that debate is between the moderates who run in mostly suburban districts and the progressives who run in mostly um, urban and, and very, very blue districts about, you know, words like socialism and uh, uh, defund police and so on. Um in that district, you had a, a, a very strong progressive running, uh, and she lost by more than a few points, six points or something, right? Uh, well, 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 Biden was winning that district by six. Now, that's a, a city-suburban district. Um, what, what should we conclude from that? Well, and keep in mind that the, you know, progressive Medicare for all Democrat there, Cara Eastman, had come within two points in 2018. Uh, She didn't come, you know, nearly that close in 2020. And for me, this goes back to around the time of the Republican convention. Remember when Trump and Republicans settled on this message of Biden as the Trojan horse of the radical left. To to me, what what a lot of voters in those types of districts took away from it was, well, Biden must not be that bad, but congressional Democrats, man, they're about to drive the country off a socialist cliff. And I think that's really when this ticket-splitting dynamic might have taken hold. Now, as far as the split in the caucus and this debate between, you know, the squad and and the Pelosi and and the more mods led by Abigail Spanberger and others, uh, who, who was caught on tape on a caucus call from using Virginia, some yeah. choice words. Uh, I find it pretty silly that you've got a group of Democratic members from D plus 35 districts trying to lecture <laughs> a bunch yeah. of people from, you know, from even to, to R plus five districts on grassroots organizing and how to win these places. I mean, it is just completely laughable to think that the lessons that they've learned, you know, in in the progressive activist bastions that they're from can be applied in these types of races. There's ample evidence at this point that candidates running towards the left in these swing districts do not do as well as candidates who have positioned themselves as moderates. More than ideology, I think what the, what the Democrats who've succeeded in purple districts have done and this, at this point, makes up the difference between being in the majority and being five seats down, is they've removed ideology from their appeal almost entirely. You know, Spanberger and Slotkin have run on national security experience, and that mm-hmm. plays well with these suburban voters. And that explains why, you know, Pelosi still has a five or six seat majority. You know, it's such an old story that is now new again, because... It's the same on the R side. If if you meet a member 
from a, a hardcore blue or hardcore red district where the only voters they really interact with are primary voters. You know, those are the only voters they know. So, of course, everybody's listening to Rush Limbaugh. And if we took the Freedom Caucus manifesto, we could get into a swing district and easily win. We just need more yard signs and more AM radio. It works in my district. You know, they, they just project. And it's the same thing w- with the squad guys and, and women. They, they're, they're in these districts where they've never, probably never met a Republican other than the one crank who's out in the Uncle Sam suit protesting their office every day. And so they think, well, this this is how you do it. You organize the votes you get for free. It They just can't. I, I always thought there ought to be a reform that half the leadership has to be from a plus one or two, the other party district, because otherwise they all think that way and they think they're right. And of course, that fits the unified field theory of in order to have the revolution, we have to organize everywhere. Piece of cake. Just do what I'm doing here in the AOC district. It'll yeah. work everywhere. And then they get the hard lesson. I actually don't think this is a leadership issue because I kind of think Pelosi gets this uh, and she's been trying to rein that in. Certainly uh, Jim Clyburn does. He's been he's been very outspoken uh, on this subject. So, uh, look, you've got young, uh, very idealistic, very ideological uh, progressives who, you know, look, I, I think everybody should have health care in this country. I think people who work hard should get paid a living wage. These are not I don't disdain those goals. The The question is, like, how do you maintain a majority to work toward them? And that is a question that they're going to have to confront uh, here. Because, Dave, where is this uh, Where is this going to end up, do you think? You have, I think, five races hanging now still. Yeah, we've got we've got six left, I believe. But, you know, the, the knife said one. I think the one in Utah got called, right? Yeah, uh-huh. so that brought my countdown from seven to six. You know, so right now we've got 221 that I count as pretty safe Democratic holds uh, and 207 for uh, for Republicans. And then, you know, Republicans lead in most of the seven that are uncalled. But the ones that I still think Democrats have a good chance in are New Jersey seven, where Tom Malinowski has a lead. The irony there is that you know he's the former director of of uh, Human Rights Watch and and uh, it's overseas ballots from a, vun- a bunch of NGO types who might end up putting him over the <laughs> top in New Jersey 7. And then you've got uh, California 25, which ironically, remember that special election when Mike Garcia yes, yeah. uh, broke through yes. in May? He might For be the Katie only— Hill. Yeah. yeah, he might be the only Republican incumbent in the country to lose this year. It's down to 100 votes or so. And then in uh, upstate New York, this is truly remarkable to me. This is a district in Utica and Binghamton— uh, New York 22, that is likely to vote for Trump by double digits. It voted for him by 15 last time. And the Republican former rep there, Claudia Tenney, is so loathed by <laughs> by local Republicans that it's still possible the Democrats going to pull that race out with absentee ballots, uh, which would just be <laughs> a, an incredible feat of political strength, given what we've seen with uh, you know people like Colin Peterson in Minnesota, who uh, who went down by 13 points. Well, she clearly made the deadly mistake of campaigning. <laughs> they yeah. met her. The point is, whatever happens, Pelosi's going to have a much uh, smaller margin, uh, the, um, uh, which, which makes these battles within her caucus more meaningful. She can't lose as many people. She has to forge uh, consensus. The other thing is, uh, in this tsunami that, Trump stirred up that helped everybody but him uh, on the Republican side. Uh, a bunch of legislatures uh, that were thought to be competitive did not flip. There were six Republican legislatures in particular that looked ripe for the taking. That didn't happen. And they, in fact, picked up two or three in a reapportionment year. So 2022 uh, looks really, really challenging for Democrats, never a great time for the incumbent party, those midterm uh, elections. What's your sense of that? Yeah, look, uh, if Democrats are heading into a redistricting process with a six-seat majority in the House, uh, they could come out of the map-making with negative, you know, one or two, uh, considering that Texas is going to add three seats and, you know, Republicans probably need to draw one in Austin to relieve pressure, but, you know, they'll draw two for themselves. Florida, I think Republicans can draw two seats for their party. And then in states like Indiana uh, and Georgia, 
uh, we can see Republicans try and axe Democratic districts from the map. So, uh, you know, there's going to be a narrower Republican map making advantage than there was 10 years ago. But we also have a, you know, a pretty narrow Democratic majority. And of course, we can't know what the political environment is going to look like two years from now. It's possible that this college educated dynamic, you know, with midterms drawing out, you know, a more kind of kind of civically plugged in group of voters that that might benefit Democrats and offset some of the typical, you know, anti uh, presidential party dynamics of a first term midterm. But it's just too early to tell. I mean, that is part of the problem for the cartographers. I mean, I guess one of the advantages is Democrats are packed in more into these metropolitan areas, but the uh, the the challenge is they can't rely on the suburbs necessarily anymore as part of their district. So they have to maximize their rural base uh, in a lot of these states, and that's going to take some artful drawing. Oh, believe me, they they have artists just like I used to live in a district in California that was only contiguous at low tide that, that the old uh, Berman <laughs> machine drew in the fond old days of democratic redistricting control. Look, with the demographic changes that are a challenge to the R's, this is a lucky break for them because it, it is going to allow them at the margins to uh, to 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 do better than, you know, you always hear the statistic depending on who lost, but more people voted for us. Uh, and the Repubs are going to keep their uh, their ability to, to survive under that circumstance. Right. And just watch Illinois where, you know, it, <laughs> Democrats might yeah. have to bring back the upside down rabbit on a skateboard district to uh, to, to save Sherry <laughs> Bustos. We'll see. We used to try to draw Sandy Levin back when I worked for Angler into Ontario. I mean, it, it's one of the great <laughs> sports to probably a shame on, on both sides. Hey, I want to go backwards for a minute uh, and ask you a quick question, David. I think you the Utica district. You're always going backwards. But, well, yeah. I'm 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 trying to. I tried to get this question in during the congressional <laughs> session, so I'm going to do it now. Uh, name another kind of. I meant in life, man. I'm not talking about. But anyway, go I ahead. am. I stand athwart history, yelling "Stop!" in the Great Buckley tradition <laughs> against. Wait for it. Socialism. Now, a question for for Wasserman. A drink drinking game word. Go ahead. All right. What was in addition to the? I think New York 22 up in Utica. What uh, what was a congressional race? I mean, you're you're like you and, and and Charlie and the team there. You're kind of the daily racing form for all these congressional races. And earlier in my career, I used to do a lot, so I would cover every one. Now I'm old and lazy, and I I watch a few of the interesting ones, like Fred Upton, where I think David is secretly ensconced right now in Western Michigan. But what Indeed. one surprised you the most? Maybe New York 22 was it, but then second most on election year, you thought, oh, hot damn, that's a weird one. Yeah, well, look, <laughs> without question, the moment on election night that made like my eyes pop out of their sockets was uh, when I saw the Miami Dade numbers. Right, me and, too. <laughs> yeah, look, everything yeah. seemed to be going okay for Biden until then. And when I saw that, you know, Miami Dade, a county that voted for Clinton by 29, was voting for Biden by eight, and I think the final margin is going to be seven, I was like, okay, wow, this is, this is different. And right at that moment, the Latinos for Trump song, the jingle. I don't know if you, you know. Yeah, the world's worst yet most effective jingle ever. Yeah. It popped into my head and it stayed there for about a week. I could not get it out <laughs> of my head because, you know, I'd had a Cuban friend send it to me the week before the election. And I was like, well, you know, if if we see something going on in Miami on election night, this will be why. And blame sure the, enough, it bl is. Just blame the bongos. Here, we're going to listen to a quick beat of it. Yeah, no, I that makes me want to move, not not vote, but I've I've heard much better uh, <laughs> Spanish language jingles. But no, that never happens. You never see a massive swing like that. You see swings. I thought Biden would be in trouble because there were early polls and dates showing it, and oh my God, he might not break twenty. It might be nineteen and a half. You know, not get to the twenty four Obama did, let alone the twenty nine Hillary did. But he was. It was unbelievable. And it, and a couple of congressional districts got popped there. Shall yeah. we lost? Yeah, well, yeah. That, that, that's the the 26th district there was a plus six Democratic district and went for Trump. Yeah, six sixty sixty five percent, sixty eight percent Latino district. These uh, two districts that flipped in Miami, 
you know, I remember being on the phone with the NRCC back in September, and they were hawking this poll to me that had Maria Elvira Salazar up by three points. And these uh, are the congressional was, races, yeah, yeah. on Donna Shalala. And I was like, look, this is a Clinton plus nineteen district. That that's you know that's BS. It's not going to happen. Well, I had to issue a major apology to, <laughs> to them after the election because she did win. Yeah. Uh, you know, Maria Salazar did win by three points. And this speaks to, I mean, we could get into all the reasons why we saw such a catastrophic loss in support. But Donna Shalala may be emblematic of this, uh, kind of the the bravado of Democrats to think that a, you know, a 77-year-old, uh, you know, former Clinton administration secretary who doesn't speak Spanish can just parachute into a 75% Hispanic district and, and win a congressional seat it's not going to hold over the long term and democrats have to have to field candidates who are going to be in touch with these electorates there's an old lesson where sometimes people think okay it's all identity it's a district of color that means democrat when issues can count the venezuelan politics the the obama initiative with cuba locally with a lot of voters i mean you look at a heat map of hialeah it's unbelievable um issues do count and they trump some of the big national assumptions we make the Republicans reap the benefit of Trump's campaigning more than Trump did, uh, and some of the things, some of the drums that he he hit relative to socialism and uh, right. uh, you know crime and so on, uh, those resonated uh, in those districts uh, as well. Interesting, uh, uh, Dave, you noted the uh, the demographic. Uh, nature of the Republican candidates who ended up winning uh, those races. And it does speak to their strategic adjustments that they made after the 2018 election. Yeah, it's true. And in 2018, out of the 30 Republican freshmen in the House, there were there was one minority and one woman. And that was it. And so far in the 11 districts that Republicans have picked up from Democrats, all of the Republican challengers have been women or minorities. Yep, big change, big, big, uh, big lesson learned. It tells you something. All right, let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. So the Senate, we spoke about McConnell earlier. That was another place where, you know, the odds on, uh, or at least the odds makers had Democrats, and including us, let's indict ourselves in the spirit of Dave Wasserman. Uh, we all uh, thought that Democrats had the edge in in, uh, uh, in taking the Senate. There, too, if they don't win, and we, you know, these are toss-up races, these Georgia races, but assuming that... Democrats don't win both of them, which is what they'd need to do to get 50-50 and have Kamala Harris uh, preside over the Senate for the next two years. If they don't get both of them, 2022 is not all that uh, inviting uh, for Democrats. The two states that seem most competitive are Wisconsin, where I guess Ron Johnson's running for uh, or will be running for re-election, and Pennsylvania, where Toomey is Mm -hmm. not. But those are not slam-dunk races for them in a midterm year. Yeah, and throw in North Carolina as well. But yeah, I agree with you. These are these are not cases like Arizona and Colorado where Democrats can be confident of a pickup throughout the cycle. It's really going to depend on the quality of candidate that that uh, Democrats are able to generate. And the question in Pennsylvania is who's not running? Yeah, right. I've done some races there, and the problem becomes you're always – you know, you just Philly Metro, uh, we did the Bloomberg IE that helped pull Toomey across. And it, it's all about there. And the problem is the politics of the center of the state and parts of the West in a primary are not the same incentive to have a little Brian Fitzpatrick to you in order to survive in the Philly media market. So this could be one thing where the primary will force a less potentially strong candidate in the general. It's going to be tricky. Well, the question is whether Connor Lamb jumps into that race with a bunch of progressive candidates from the east, of the eastern part of the state, yeah, which would be and, good, and ends up and ends up winning a primary, uh, which you know, I mean, um, 
and sort of follows the Casey, the Casey formula, Bob Casey formula for winning uh, that state. Uh, you know, look, another factor is going to be um, how Democrats are perceived in 2022 and that it's going to have a lot to do with how Biden does and how Biden does is going to have a, a lot to do with how much cooperation he can get out of the Senate. So we back into those Georgia races as being uh, really important because as much as he, um, as much as he's spoken about his cooperative relationship relationship with Mitch McConnell, and I've seen uh, that I was there when he did some really important negotiation for the Obama administration with McConnell. I also was there uh, and witnessed how McConnell operates, and fundamentally, he's about power and he's about maintaining it. And he's going to do ultimately what I think he needs to, uh, what he thinks he needs to do to uh, to hang on to that majority and expand it. Uh, and it may not include seeing uh, Biden uh, as a successful president. And that's just the raw politics of it. Well, uh, that's been the theme for a couple of years now. Yeah. No, I lived it, man. I was there. <laughs> I like to call it the Dashiell playbook. But anyway, that's another another discussion. Here's here's a hypothetical for you, Katz. Let's say you're a competitive Democratic candidate. We're not worried about who, maybe a Connor Lamb type, but in 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 a potentially good Senate race in the midterms, like a Wisconsin or a Pennsylvania. What is better just for you that the Democrats win Louisiana and take control, and then the R's are going to say, oh, they run the whole show, everything that's wrong you're in a traffic you mean jam Georgia. today. That, 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 I'm sorry, Georgia. I always say Louisiana when I mean Georgia. I did a thing. I with know Rove they all the look other. alike to you, right? You <laughs> we, I did a thing with Rove, and and I made that mistake, and then he made that mistake. So for the rest of it, we just referred to it as <laughs> uh, uh, Georgiana. But anyway, the point being, if you're a midterm dem and a competitive, do you want to have total party control and run with those advantages, or would you rather have the Repub still hang on so you got something to be against? I mean, if if it's all if it's all dem control. The Repub campaign, that's a sharp stick we Repubs are good at. So it's tricky. It's tricky for the midterms because I think Biden's going to have a heavy lift. And if people are willing to give the Democrats and Biden a lot of credit for hopefully by then having done well on COVID for the next 18 months due to a vaccine period, I don't know if gratitude lasts in politics because there will still be economic pain that Repubs will run against. So that's a, you know, it, it, it's almost like careful what you wish for in Georgia because the midterms are going to be a challenge. Yeah, that's such a good question. In these statewide races in in 2022, I mean, we know that that all of the lefties in the suburbs are going to show up, right? And there's no doubt about that. But the question is, what does inner city turnout look like in some of these big, you know, Senate contests? Because you know, considering Black Lives Matter and all of the the events of 2020, you know, we thought it was going to be through the roof this time around. Um, the history making, you know, prospect of the of the first African-American woman on the ticket. Right. And yet when I'm looking through some of the results from major cities I mean, sh- the turnout was flat, in a lot of them. And Chicago, for example, went from 84 to 12 for Clinton to 82, 16 for Biden. Cleveland went from 82, 14 for Clinton to 80 to 19 for Biden. Uh, even San Francisco was 85 to 9 to 85 to 13. To, uh, you know, Lawrence, Massachusetts was 82.15 to 73.25 because it's 80% Hispanic. So the Hispanic problem for Democrats is not limited to, uh, to my, to South Florida or South Texas. It's also, you know, in a lot of other cities. Play the Rudy, uh, clip for us, will you? The reality is that I would be surprised if Philadelphia didn't cheat in this election. Yeah. They've done it in the last, so, for the so last 60 me- years. Okay. So there, there is the president's, uh, television lawyer arguing why. He thought there was corruption in the election because he has a hunch that that's what they always do in Philadelphia. Your numbers, the numbers you're citing are pretty strong evidence that he's kind of full of shit here. Yeah, look, Philadelphia was the one part of Pennsylvania where Trump actually got a higher vote share or closed the margin from 16. You know, Hillary won the city of Philadelphia by 67 points in 2016. You know, Joe Biden it would be lucky to to hit a 64 point margin when all the votes are finalized. And so, uh, you know, that's consistent across the urban cores is that, you know, we saw f- flat turnout 
And we saw, if anything, a little bit of an increase in support for Trump because among truly low-income non-white voters, his message on, you know, Democrats being the party of lock, lockdowns and, you know, want to want to uh, lock down the economy and all that, it resonates. The fact is the Trump people said they were going to bring out a huge turnout among their non-college white base in rural areas, and they did that. And the Trump people said they were going to do better among uh, non-white voters than they did in 2000. And 16. And they did that. And you have to give them credit for that because they they ran a relentless campaign to try and bring particularly uh, young black men over. They got 18 percent of them and uh, and and a very focused campaign with uh, Latino voters, particularly in 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 South Florida. But they also did pretty well in South Texas. Uh, And so they, they get credit for that. I have to say Biden gets some Uh, a lot of credit, not just for the messaging that allowed him to navigate these rocky shoals, but also in the decisions he made about where he put his resources, uh, because he did not invest heavily in Texas. He did not invest heavily in Ohio. uh, And he did play hard in Georgia. uh, And and, uh, at least financially in Arizona, didn't visit there very often. Uh, But uh, he made the right strategic uh, decisions uh, as you look at these numbers, but these these this should be a warning sign to uh, to Democrats uh, that uh, you should not take your uh, you know they got massive numbers among uh, black voters they got uh, majority numbers among uh, Hispanic voters and in some states it was strong like in Arizona, but you you can't take them for granted or treat these communities like monoliths. Uh, they, they need to be uh, addressed differently. Let's take a minute to do an ad and we'll be right back. Three quick things. One, the Chicago numbers particularly amaze me because I'm pretty sure I voted twice for uh, for Biden there. Second, old joke, I can't resist beating to death. But more seriously, yeah, I you got to give. You the, promised me you were gonna you were gonna give that up <laughs> I, I after the I election, but you just can't. You can't. That one was too easy. Second, you got to give the Trump people, which is hard for me to do, a little credit. They they had an issue. I mean, they seriously worked the whole criminal justice reform thing where there's kind of an interesting bridge between progressives and conservatives, and they put time and focus into that. So, you know, policy counts. But finally, I can't it does. resist Being this Being a raving, a raving white supremacist probably worked a little bit against that. But Well, I, I would have thought it would have worked more against it, which is my I would have, too. I would have, too. That that just shows that. Well, I, I have a lot of theories about that. I don't, I don't. More data needs to be done to figure it out. But let me let me get to this. I remember during the convention when I was arguing that I didn't think Kamala Harris, based on her primary performance, was a particularly good candidate. And everybody said, no, 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 it has to be done for the cities because Hillary underperformed in the Detroits and the Milwaukee's. And so it's a must-do, must-do, must-do. I was pushing Gina Ramuda, who, by the way, sent me an autographed photo. So, Gina, ah, my heart a flutter. <laughs> but uh, thank you for that, Governor Raimundo. Um, and a well-deserved autographed absolutely. photo, I must say. She, she was joking about it in, a, in the note. But my point is, Kamala Harris, what what happened? Or is it not her fault? She She's off the hook now for what was the main pitch for her, uh, other than national healing in the wake of uh, George Floyd, which I thought was the strongest reason for her. But I, I'm not seeing that big lift we were supposed to get uh, from from her historic vice presidential candidacy. What What's up with that? No, I, I, and look, she didn't really inspire a lot of new voters to the polls during her, her, uh, her presidential run, which ended kind of before it began. But I don't think she connects at the grassroots level to the same degree that Stacey Abrams does. Um, and, you know, I think we saw that in Georgia. It was more of an Abrams boost than it was a Harris boost. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of missed opportunities, I think, for Biden in this campaign. And look, overall, I can't fault the pick of Harris because clearly it brought in a ton of money to the campaign. It really it, it did, you know, increase some energy among the the activist base. But uh, yeah, there are two things that that Biden could have done, I think, to blunt Trump's attacks that 
those attacks pretty much ultimately went unanswered. The first would have been to feature in his ads some support from uh, you know, a multiracial coalition of sheriffs and police chiefs, uh, which Biden really failed to do. And uh, then the second would be to give, you know, a blistering anti-fascism, anti-Putin speech uh, right. to try and go on the offensive in, in Miami and other places on that socialism message. And I do think that the law and order message from Trump ended up uh, appealing to a small segment of black men and Hispanic men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. The coming midterms in the House, we talked about the Senate and, and you know, a couple of the interesting races. But w- what's your feel now as the top handicapper kind of looking forward? And normally, you know, the midterms are rough for the new president. But on the other hand, we, we have a lot fewer swing seats than we used to, though. The Republicans kind of stretched the rubber band back this time. What the... Uh, What's your early instinct on that? We're not sure how many swing seats there will be after uh, these creative cartographers are done slicing and dicing the electorate. But uh, I, I do think that in commission states, um, you know, and one of the things we didn't cover, we are going to see a move towards more commission and court-drawn maps in 2021 than we saw 10 years ago. And in Michigan and Colorado, um, in addition to California and New Jersey, uh, you know, we're going to have uh, more neutral processes and we'll have deadlocks in some states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania that likely lead to, you know, state Supreme Courts or federal courts drawing maps. Uh, one of the key questions I have is whether Democrats can can win lawsuits to create more majority black districts in the Deep South. Keep in mind that in Alabama and Louisiana and South Carolina, there's essentially only been one black district that Republicans have stuffed, you know, every uh, black voter into the last several decades. And uh, we'll, we'll see whether uh, Democrats and Mark Elias and the, you know, the legal team uh, can, can sue to create additional districts. That would be a real boon for Pelosi. Nobody has his ear to the ground more than Wasserman. We all have contacts in all these states. Uh, part of what everybody was misled by was polling again. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be a I think that's a whole nother show. That's a whole nother discussion as to what went uh, what went wrong there and and how we deal with that in the future. But, you know, people who went out, I mean, there were some great uh, reporters. Uh, Charlotte Alter from Time was one of them who went out and had discussions with voters and came back and said, boy, there's really there's a lot of anger out there a lot of a lot of consumption of conspiracy theories out there uh and uh that sort of belie the polls and you know so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to look at that uh and and figure out how we we we, how we account for everybody in a way that makes sense so that we're not kind of hanging our hats on those Wasserman, how much how much did you rely on these polls to make your projections. Well, let, let me just interject for a second. One of my little secrets that isn't that little and isn't that much of a secret, because I think we all do it, is looking at the presidential ballot in congressional districts. And you would occasionally tweet, David, like, wow, in a plus seven Repub district, apparently Biden up five to seven in their data. And I always, in my past career when I was doing, I always found that a very good tell. Yet it was as wrong this time as everything was in the polling. And so, yeah, I, I'm curious what your take is on the future. That Biden did flip 12 Trump districts. So, uh, you know, almost all of them in the suburbs. Yeah, let me address that for a second, because, you know, I've been hammering home these district level polls uh, for the last several months of the campaign. And I, I think what they told us was that Biden, unlike Clinton, could survive a pretty large polling error. Uh, and in fact, there was a large polling error, but it was barely survivable for Biden. You know, the polls in these swing seats in Pennsylvania were showing Biden up 10 in Bucks County. Uh, in, uh, in northeastern Pennsylvania, you know, Biden was running 10 points ahead of the 16 margin for Clinton. And, you know, same thing in Connor Lamb's district. And so the polling was a consistent story. It was just consistently off by six or seven points. Um, and I don't buy the shy Trump theory when it comes to, you know, a bunch of, of people being 
picked up by pollsters who are just lying about their vote intention. We didn't see that in 2016, really, and uh, and I don't think there was much evidence that it was suddenly going to appear in 2020. But I do think uh, the three things that the polls missed uh, were, number one, um, Trump voters are just harder to reach. It's a it's a more yeah. working class vote. It's not a shy are, Trump voter. It's an inaccessible Trump voter. Yeah, so that's part of it. But also, I think Trump's denigration of polls makes his own supporters less likely to answer surveys. And that increased right. since 2016. Yeah, totally third- increased. I have a friend who's yeah. a pollster who's got the data. And off the voter list, when there were people who were likely to be Trump registered ours, you had to make many more calls to get a connect. Yeah, yeah. the refuse rate is, is something that has to be looked at. What's your third one there, Wasserman? And the third one is COVID. And, you know, Nate Cohen yeah. at the Times and, and others have made this point. But, you know, we we would see a, a spike in Democratic numbers in COVID hotspots um, throughout 2020. And in retrospect, you know, Democrats were the ones much likelier to take the virus seriously, and they were much more likely to be home. On this uh, question of, of the turnout, polling is, is a pretty blunt in- instrument to try and ascertain turnout as well. And that's another factor. I mean, you know, you measure excitement and so on, but it isn't as uh, precise, you know, as you'd like. So um, I think, you know, all your factors plus that uh, all have made uh, a difference there. But I'll tell you what, man, the the sense of jaundice about polls, you can't talk to anybody who doesn't just unload uh, about this. And I will say there were skeptics like my wife, Susan, who uh, didn't even want to hear about polls going into this election after 2016. She, How can she, she stand was here hanging Michigan around with you if that's the, the... She can't stand hanging around with me. This is a big problem. You're the most polling addict I have ever met. I'm a poll addict, and I think you've got a problem. It's You're you're like the king. Yeah, I know, but I'm going I'm, I'm going to detox. All right, good, uh, At good, her good. insistence and yours, I'm going to uh, go know, to detox. I, I, one crazy prediction. I think there might be a bit of a revert to mean because polls are like, they're very good at measuring repeat customers. You know, they don't know the new cut. Co- we had a lot of new customers this year when Trump is gone. Eh, things may go a little bit back to the older model. We'll find out. Uh, we will say, and I, I, I said it again last week, but eating shit for is good for the soul. So I'll do it again. And that is Ann Seltzer in uh, Iowa. Uh, <laughs> I ridiculed the hell out of her for her poll, her pre-election poll. She was absolutely right. Everybody said Iowa was a tight race. She said it wasn't. Uh, She was right, almost got it right on the nose. So there are some pollsters out there who who methodologically have found a way to confront this. It'd probably be worth talking to her. Or uh, Iowans tell the truth to pollsters, because as we've all worked in Iowa, or actually I have, they're the nicest people in the world. (laughs) <laughs> she may be the last live interview survey house left after this. I mean, I don't see yeah, how some yeah. of the others can stay in business with the cost of of associated with running a poll like that. Well, I'm waiting for the press release from Trafalgar, one again predicting they got everything right. Well, he put out that dumb thing after Trump, you know, after the election, like day two, saying, oh, clearly Trump's going to win North Carolina and Massachusetts. You know, he blew himself up. So uh, I think karmic justice there. All right, we're doing a fast mailbag. Let's play the music. It's mailbag. If you have a mailbag question, send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com, and don't forget to rate and share us on Apple Podcast. All right, X. This is a little bit out of your uh, a little bit out of your lane, but nothing really is Wasserman. So let me ask you this: a question from a guy named Dave. Uh, we like Good to pair start. names with, with our guests. And I doubt that Red America will change their news consumption anytime soon, and maybe in the short term it's not possible to meaningfully move the needle on any of the culture war issues. But are there real policy reforms that Dems can implement to win back a meaningful share of these voters? Is there something that government can do to meaningfully improve the lives of rural Americans? I'll, I'll repurpose the, the question and say, uh, what do you think Democrats need to do to uh, to to make some inroads there and pre- prevent the kind of annihilation that we just saw? Or is that a hopeless uh, pursuit? Well, I think, first of all, uh, stop underestimating the number of Americans who are drowning in disinformation. I mean, this is this is real. And just about every 
societal problem we face can be can be traced to this unhealthy addiction to uh, to you know a bunch of BS on social media. But on rural America, look, I think it's an amazing achievement that Biden was able to hold the line in many of these places and prevent them from trending even more Republican than they were in 2016. And and I think that will go un- underappreciated in the analysis of the, you know, the county by county. And he actually did a little bit better in some of these smaller industrial towns, particularly in Pennsylvania and, and Wisconsin, where that's right. he needed to. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, Democrats will be able to point to things like rolling back the Trump tariffs as a you know, a reopening of trade relations and a potential boon to the farm economy. I don't think it'll move the needle much. I, I, I think the number one example of the disconnect in the Democrats' mindset in the past four years was was they simply believed that retaliatory tariffs would lead to a retaliation of voters against Republicans. But no one was really communicating on air the relationship between, you know, the the Trump trade policies and actual real life consequences for voters, and if Democrats begin to do that, they stand a better chance of winning some voters back. All right, Axe, here is a great question for you from Super Listener Aaron. Our cabinet positions typically announced in a certain order. Which can we expect to hear about first, and when will we start hearing about the top positions, e.g. Secretary of State. And by the way, the rumors aren't true. I'm passing on that and on Amtrak. I'm still open for Secretary of the Navy. Yeah, a grateful nation thanks you for <laughs> passing on that. Um, I think there there generally is a sequencing to this. I think we're going to begin to start hearing of the flow of these starting around Thanksgiving. That's what the campaign is saying. Uh, and I I would expect that the, the sort of senior positions in the cabinet, Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, Attorney General, and Secretary of Defense, will be among the first that we hear about. And when you're putting a cabinet together, you really think hard about those positions because if you want to put a very diverse cabinet together, you, you, you pick those folks first and then you uh, go from there as well. So I would expect to hear about those uh, positions first and maybe some healthcare. Uh, positions, the HHS secretary and so on, uh, simply because uh, we're in the midst of a of a killer pandemic and there'll be great public interest in that. Murphy Randall wants to know, if Trump is serious about announcing a 2024 run, at what point do the other hopefuls turn the knives on him or do they stay submissive to him? This is a little bit about what we were talking about, a little of what we were talking about earlier. Will those that sort of pushed back like Ben Sass, be able to benefit from being the anti-Trump Republican in 2024, or is the base fully baked for Trump? Great. This is a hard question for you because you live in a dream world, but go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm I'm the Kreskin of this. Uh, I can see the future. You know, it, it is, there is a lot of uncertainty, Randall. I would say this. I am sure he's going to announce a committee soon. Not necessarily because he's going to run, but it's a bargaining chip to get the microphones in front of him so he can provide a running grievance commentary on Biden. And unfortunately, the media will fall for it and give him far too much attention. So I think there will be maybe a Potemkin run, maybe a real one. We'll see. Uh, I was on something with Scaramucci, uh, and Anthony made a good point. He knows Trump's personality. He says, after one loss, even the idea of risking a double loss is going to be terrifying to Trump. So he doesn't think he'll ultimately run. As far as what they're going to do about him, they will they will coddle him until the nanosecond when they sense they can get away with not coddling him. And so if my theory is right, that Trump kind of rots away politically in the rearview mirror, you start to see the sasses and others start to wiggle away. If not, if, if it is still the Church of Trump and the media plays along, uh, they're going to be what they are now. They'll be having anti-Trump meetings in their basement and in the front row of the Trump rally the rest of the time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the authorities in New York do as well, because he does have a raft of legal problems. Right. The uh, president-elect has said he doesn't want to do the look-back thing, but the uh, which I think is smart, but the uh, authorities in New York uh, certainly are looking hard at his uh, at him and his businesses. And one of the reasons he may want to keep himself 
very prominent in the discussions about 2024 is already answered to any indictment that might come is this is a political prosecution. They're trying to stop me from uh, running again. He will look good in orange. It'll match the hair. And so, you know, not anymore. Yeah, I notice he 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 is uh, he is he's going au naturel lately. I mean, I don't know if he didn't have time uh, for a touch up, but in any case, that's a topic for that's yeah, a, top a, and a topic episode, for another right, day. Right. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're plugged. The Cook Political Report. Our old friend Charlie Cook, Dave Wasserman is a natural redhead <laughs> that is completely yeah, yeah, none real. of this fraudulent Trump stuff here. Uh, Amy Walter, all kinds of great people are there doing a wonderful job of uh, providing the daily racing form of uh, American politics. Well, can I say it's, uh, it's been a lifelong dream to hang out with the hackiest of hacks. And uh, so, uh, <laughs> you've made it, did it not disappoint. You're, you're one of us now. Axe, I'll see you soon. See you, brother. And let's go out in a salute to Mr. David Wasserman, handicapper extraordinaire with some excellent bluegrass. And fiddler extraordinaire. <laughs>